Once more in the Jaws obsession, where we are here to share with you, prove to you, convince you, or remind you that Jaws is the greatest movie of all time. Welcome back for episode 65, A Bridge to History. Thank you very much for your lending your time in tuning in to the world's number one Jaws broadcast, where the show has taken a special tone as of late. I want to thank everyone for making the last episode, episode 64, was a rating smash. We detailed the Jaws historical connection, that is Quint's speech, and how that had actual roots with uh, quartermaster first class Bob Gauze. And this episode will serve to stamp home how Quint's tale is a bridge to history. And we have a guest that has used the book of Quint to connect us to the historical significance of this moment that we find ourselves in. This is truly a special time, and this is going to be a continuation of that uh, of episode 64. So if you haven't listened to episode 64, go you can press stop, go listen to episode 64, and then we'll, we'll see you back here. Maybe these two episodes should go together, like nice little bookends. I've had many, many emails regarding the Book of Quint. I'm sorry at this time that we do not have any copies left to send out. I'm getting numerous requests from around the world for any available books. And those are on the horizon, I promise you. In one way or another, we will be worldwide later this year. We're very close to that. It's an exciting time. There's a lot of work going on behind the scenes here. I would like to thank everybody for their patience who has not yet read the Book of Quint. I am uh, holding a lot back in the Jaws analytics because what the Book of Quint does is that it, it, it expands the boundaries 
of how we can see and view Jaws and analyze character performances and analyze histories. And that's what's going to be exciting is once the Book of Quint goes worldwide and everybody has a chance to read it, now the Jaws obsession is going to take on uh, a second season, if you will, in what in which uh, we are going to be reviewing Jaws in a new light now that we can actually talk about the spoilers that are in the book of Quint. So they won't be spoilers anymore because everybody will have a chance to read it. And then we will be able to analyze and see what details we can extract from Jaws in a way that a proper prequel will help any film out. There has always been this unspoken quality of the film Jaws and uh, people return to it every year to rewatch it and enjoy it with their families, maybe introduce it to someone who has never seen it before. And it's a joy to watch the movie with someone who has never seen it before, to experience it through their eyes for the first time. What is it about this movie? And that's what the Jaws Obsession was dedicated to do, is the Jaws Obsession is dedicated in finding out the answer. What is it about Jaws that makes it the greatest movie of all time? It's not just one answer. It's not just one episode, two episodes. We're even on episode 65, and we still were just scratching the surface and explaining why Jaws is the greatest movie of all time. And I think episode 65 is going to be another brick in that wall in the foundation that we are building here and figuring out after almost 50 years later, why do we gravitate towards this movie in the way that we do? Amazing stuff. Amazing stuff here. Let's go to some emails. We have, we have, I've had a lot of emails. And if you want to email me here at the show, jawsob2025 at gmail.com. I do read all emails. I don't respond with copy and paste responses. I want to respond to everyone in time and give everyone my full attention. So if I don't get back to you right away, please don't be uh, dejected. I will. I try to answer every email. As always, if I have any articles that, I be ref- that I'll be referencing later on, uh, I'll be posting those on our show notes. Our show notes can be found over at Telegram, at JawsOB. First out of the box, we had an email from Wes. Wes writes in, I don't know where Wes is writing from. If you do email the show, try to put where you are writing from so we can see exactly what part of the world that we are reaching out to. Uh, The Jaws Obsession has registered downloads in over 90 countries. I'm always curious about who... Uh, who's listening, uh, when and where. And Wes writes in, he says, Hi, Ryan, I just recently stumbled onto your podcast on YouTube. I regret missing the campaign. I agree wholeheartedly. Jaws is the greatest movie ever made. My dad took me to see Jaws at the drive-in when I was four and a half years old. It was a wonderful and traumatic experience for me. I remember thinking as we watched the film, this guy Quint is my dad. My dad was the quint of our neighborhood and community. People were always shocked by my dad's personality and didn't really know how to take him, but they all seemed to miss him very much after he was gone. You can imagine how I felt as a small child when Quint met his end. The funny thing is I don't think my dad saw himself this way, nor did he know that I saw him this way. The stories I could tell. Uh, Wes continues on, I just listened to episode 42 and I agree with your sleeves down button up theory. My dad was an old Marine and I am a Marine also and this is how we were trained. Now that I think of it, maybe the reason my dad never saw the similarities between him and Quint was because Quint was a sailor. 
Even if he saw the similarity, he would not admit it. LOL. And maybe that's why I never told him that I could see it. Keep up the good work, Semper Fi. Wes. Well, thank you very much for your service, Wes. And yes, Marines. And uh, I always did love, I always have been amused at the uh, little rivalry that the Navy has with the uh, Marines and the Marines have with the Navy. And that you're citing that there, uh, what he was talking about. Uh, Wes was referring to episode 42. That was our Jaws Easter Eggs 2. That's where we analyzed the wardrobe of the characters and what we could tell about their history in not just what their wardrobe is, but how they wear it. And Quint was the first one out of the box with that. Um, We extracted the way he's wearing uh, that he emerges from the orca at the end when the orca is sinking uh, in full battle dress. That That is from the military customs of general emergency. And Wes does confirm that. Wes is a Marine and so was his father. And he does confirm that the sleeves down button up theory does have some merit. We did the same thing in the U.S. Coast Guard. So that's why Quint does emerge dressed like that in Jaws. Wes also added in earlier in his email, he said, I have also wondered a lot about the backstory of Chief Brody. He was the quiet and calm man who emerged as the hero who ended up killing the monster. I think about the the time period that he served as a police officer and when he served and what was going on at the time. I am sure that he's seen his own share of blood and guts, evil people and crooked politicians. He must have been suffering from PTSD as well. He did not stick around when he retired from the police force and hang out with his old police buddies. He moved to Amity to find a quieter life. Was it the quiet and calm hero that Amity needed? Was this Providence? I have really enjoyed what you are doing, and I'm thankful, and I can't wait to see the film. We we did tackle a little bit about that in Jaws Obsession episode 43, The Ellen Brody Effect. I recently re-listened to that episode, doing some research on what was already covered and what hasn't been covered. And uh, that does give you some insight into Chief Brody's history. Uh, the Ellen Brody Effect, uh, there is a lot of insight that uh, we can extract by how she interacts with Chief Brody how Ellen interacts with Martin. What I am seeing is that Brody was comfortable in New York City and he did not want to move to Amity Island, but that was Ellen's idea to move to Amity Island. Obviously, we know that he doesn't even like an island. He doesn't like the water. So this was not his first place of choice, his choice of moving there, but but it was Ellen's. And uh, we do explain all of that in great detail, detail in episode 43. But I think we are going to get into a little bit more of the backstory of Chief Brody as we move through further episodes of the Jaws Obsession. There are some Easter eggs that, uh, that do tell us uh, some more of his history, and there is more to be discovered when we talk about Chief Brody. So we're going to get into that in future episodes. But great ideas. Wes, thank you so much. Uh, yes, Quint reminds many of us about uh, maybe an uncle, a grandfather, a father, a brother, and that he reminded you of uh, of your dad. And um, that's why he's an important character. And that's why I felt so strongly about this prequel, this backstory, which is the book of Quint. Uh, to get it right, it had to, you have to take your time and it had to have been researched meticulously. I feel that that's why to uh, pay homage to all, not just Quint, but all the people that Quint reminds us of. That's how special this story is. And that's how seriously we have to take a backstory to Quint. It's not something to be taken lightly. And that's why the book of Quint is 
Um, that's why there is so much put into that, uh, into the research and the writing of that novel, um, that I feel with all of my heart that it does, it will make everyone proud because Quint is very dear to many hearts of the Jaws fans. And I'm excited to see it uh, go out to the world so everyone will have access to read the book of Quint. Thanks, Wes. Thanks for writing in. Moving on, we had an email from Jackie. She says, hi, Ryan. The only thing I like about Jaws was the music. You talked about it in a previous podcast. As a visually impaired listener, all I need is the music. The movie soundtrack ruins it for me. If I know what the movie's about, I can listen to the music alone and draw my own conclusions about what's happening. That's the beauty of John Williams. He writes in such a way where I can use my imagination. What do you think? And that was an email from Jackie. Well, Jackie, thank you for, for writing in. And as a visually impaired listener, that she has not seen Jaws, but she can hear Jaws. And there's the signature of John Williams is, is telling that story and how right she is. Because if you have the soundtrack, um, I, w- I grew up with the LP, with the vinyl of the soundtrack. But later on, they actually released what was in the movie on a collector's edition soundtrack. One of the things that they could have done on a Jaws Blu-ray or Jaws DVD is they could have, they could have included just soundtrack uh, only, just the score only. So you would listen to the movie with just the score. I always liked how some of the DVDs did that, where they take out the dialogue, they take out the sound effects, uh, soundtrack, any kind, any sort of uh, fully work on the soundtrack, and it's just the score played with the with the visuals. But as a visually impaired listener, uh, Jackie actually says that she can listen to the music and, and with her imagination, she watches the movie. That's a unique experience. And also she's proving how Jaws is the greatest movie of all time in that John Williams actually directs the movie in her mind with his score. How amazing is that? Uh, one of the things that she reminds me of is how important an audiobook is to the Jaws universe. We have to really look at tackling the audiobook of the Book of Quint. So Jackie and others who won't be able to read the book will be able to listen to the narration of the book. So I have some ideas that I will be working at a few months from now. Uh, so there's a lot of work to be done on that front as well. Thank you very much, Jackie, for writing in. And I'm going to make sure that you will be able to listen to the Book of Quint in its entirety. That's one of the one of the very important aspects of this is that we want to make sure all Jaws fans have access to the Book of Quint. Thanks, Jackie. Next email, we had a review from Sarah. Sarah is located in the United Kingdom. And Sarah writes in, she says, Well, Ryan, within two days of my last email to you, I finished the book. I have never, ever been so ensconced. I have never been so consumed and intrigued by the next word. As I said previously, I still, not can be- I still cannot believe that this was your first book. You had Quint's story perfectly, and I was imagining every minute on the big screen. To be honest, I was sorry and upset that it all had to end. I could have kept reading. Mind you, there are lots of trails of the story that you could indeed pick up and write more of. I will be waiting. Ryan, I did indeed put the book back into its cellophane sleeve, and it does sit pride of place. I continue to listen to the Jaws obsession, and again, I am ensconced. I hope and pray for the powers that be to allow a screenplay, as I feel that the Book of Quint should be also on the big screen. 
but there will always be a place in my heart for the book. So farewell and adieu from me, waiting till next time. Sarah, thank you very much, Sarah, from the United Kingdom for such a great review, such great compliments that she says that she was imagining every minute on the big screen. She was sorry that it all had to end. Yes, so was I. I did not want to finish writing the, the, the book. It was sad to see some of the, say goodbye to some of the characters when, when you have finally have to call it a day and say, okay, the book is done. She says there are lots of trails of the story that you could indeed pick up and write more of which is true. The Book of Quint does establish a Jaws universe, an expanded Jaws universe. That is something that emerged from this process that I did not realize what was, go that what was going to happen. When you open that door, when you open that window into the writing process, you start to receive many different signals and stories. Uh, uh, you, you start to receive information and signals, and there is more work to be done. I believe Sarah is going to definitely be a reader of what is coming up in the future. Thank you very much, Sarah, for the great compliments, for the great book review. I'm going to put it in the stack. Remember, every time you have a, that there's a book review and you and anyone emails that, in, I put it over into the stack. That stack goes over to my agent, Phil Pettit. It's just more fuel for the fire. And that's what we're looking at here is that every one of these reviews count. And I look forward to when uh, we get it more official, we're going to uh, get the Book of Quint up onto Goodreads so people can log in over there and they'll be able to write their reviews and have a discussion on the book and the novel. One more email. One more email. This is going to be a little bit more of an involved email. Uh, this email comes from Kimberly. And Kimberly uh, was one of the librarians that accepted uh, the Book of Quint uh, for school libraries in Penrith over in England. Kimberly always had a really always has really uh, involved questions. She she really holds my feet to the fire in terms of Jaws lore and trying to match things up and keep every, and, and actually really going into the movie, into Jaws. And she has, uh, she dropped three of them on me here, and I'm going to do my best to explain all three of them. She says, so I'm all caught up on the podcast since I last emailed you. It made me smile when you read our emails from Dave and myself in the same episode. It felt like a Bowen family takeover. We both just love the podcast and the Book of Quint. And now, so does my nephew. I am looking forward to talking to him about it when they visit in a few weeks. I am about halfway through the book, totally gripped, and I keep thinking of questions. So I need to get them down. Here, here they go. For her first question is, the infamous billboard poster in Jaws states 50th annual regatta. But there is no way that the hand-to-mouth community of Amity was having a regatta back in 1925. I don't think the thought would even occur would even occur to the islanders back then to go sailing for any reason other than necessity. Is this part of the Vaughn marketing strategy to invent some kind of heritage for Amity that is more tasteful than the reality? So what she's talking about is in the Book of Quint, it's established that Amity Island is an uh, is an outlier island. It's an outlier island. It's one of three islands. You have Martha's Vineyard, you uh, you have Nantucket, and then you have Little Amity Island off to the uh, 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 further out to the ocean. And um, there's maps in the Book of Quint that detail that. Uh, we talked about that in uh, episode 32 of the Jaws Obsession called Amity Island Geography, where we had proof that's in Jaws that Amity is one of three islands off the coast of Massachusetts. There are two instances where it says 50th Annual Regatta. That's on the billboard. And it's also on the banner here, Amity Island 4th of July Celebration, 50th Annual Regatta. 
that's on the banner when Chief Brody, Chief Brody is crossing the town square, the Amity Town Square. There, we there's a 50th annual regatta. So now let's work it. Let's work backwards. It's 1974 in the movie, so this would be the 50th annual regatta. So it would be 1924 is when the first annual regatta was. Now, um, in the book of Quint. In 1951 is when Quint comes to the island. But we do know that Mayor Vaughn already has things in the process and going on probably around 49, 1950, 1949, 1950. What it's established is that Mayor Vaughn, uh, that Larry Vaughn's family, the Vaughn family, uh, most most notably his father, has an established business and businesses and interests in the Amity Island area. And that the even though there is no electricity on the island, there is some history given in the Book of Quint. But the town of Amity, back in the 20s, would have been a haven for the wealthier folks to go as a getaway, a retreat. Now, is this regatta, would that be the early uh, Vaughn family sailing out there in order to go stay on the island in the in the houses that were built there around Amity Harbor, that could be. Or did they have a family regatta where they would go out there for the 4th of July to vacation for a few weeks from their home, from a permanent home somewhere else? That could also be a possibility. But the simple fact is, is that I believe that regatta is really the Vaughn family regatta the Vaughn family's sailing venture every summer and the and Larry Vaughn is marketing that as the Amity as the 50th annual regatta. So he's counting that when his family, when his father was sailing with the other in uh, with the other islanders in the 20s that that would be the first annual regatta in 1924. So is it possible that that's the actual date that when the Vaughn family moved to Amity Island, it's very possible. That's I, I honestly, that's probably the most logical thought. There is that Larry Vaughn and the Vaughn family w- would have used that as first annual regatta, second annual regatta, third annual regatta as kind of setting a stake and saying, "Oh, we've always had a town here. Look how long we've been doing." town events. Now, what's interesting is that later on, Martin Brody says, Kids can't leave the house. You got to walk them to school. But in Amity, one man can make a difference. In 25 years, there's never been a shooting or a murder in this town. So 25 years, there hasn't been a shooting or a murder in this town. By my math, that would be 1949. 25 years later, after 1949, would be 1974. So what Chief Brody, I believe right here, is quoting Mayor Vaughn at his hiring, at his interview process. Mayor Vaughn would have said, we haven't had a murder or a shooting in this town in 25 years because I believe that's when they started keeping records, establishing plot, land rights, easements, uh, official official town borders, that would have been in 1949 is when Larry Vaughn actually started making the maneuvers to create the town of Amity, the official township. Even though Amity was founded earlier 
in the book of Quint, it's written that it was settled in the 1800s by people looking to get away from society, but it was never officially established. And that's what I'm saying is that in order to be a town, you have to have certain benchmarks in order to convince the state to give you the certain funding and all of that. And that's why that's a very interesting term. In 25 years, there hasn't been a shooting or a murder in this town. That's a very interesting statement by Martin Brody. But in Amity, one man can make a difference. In 25 years, there's never been a shooting or a murder in this town. So uh, Martin just got there. Martin Brody just got there. How would he know the history? He doesn't really know the history. He, he just heard that from Mayor Vaughn about the 25-year mark because that's what Mayor Vaughn has in order to say uh, it's a nice round figure, 25 years. But Amity was definitely older than 25 years, and there's been a regatta going on for 50 years. So there's an official demarcation line of when they started officially trying to establish a town. And then now, and that 25 years later, and then 19, that would have been 1949. And it just so happens that that lines up with the events of the Book of Quint when, Am, when uh, Quint actually gets there in 1951. So uh, all, of these, all of these dates are, uh, were factored into the writing of the Book of Quint. I think that 50th annual regatta sign that Kimberly is pointing out here, if you couple that with the 25 years, does, do, do we actually think there was a shooting and a murder back in 1948 so they had to reset the clock? I don't think so. I don't think there was. I just believe that that's the date they started keeping records. Now in 1974, 25 years later, they were told, if you want to have an official uh, township, if you want to actually establish for state aid for the population increase that Mayor Vaughn was looking for with the tourist trade as the tourist industry was picking up, you're going to have to establish an Amity Police Department full time. That's why Chief Brody was hired. Very interesting stuff. Thank you very much for pointing that out, Kimberly, the, with the 50th annual goddess. I think that might be a Vaughn marketing strategy, but there is some truth to it, is that there was some sort of sailing regatta because the rich, the wealthier folks that made up the town of Amity, that the Book of Quint details on the east side, on the east side of the island, that town of Amity has, that's where all the money is, is on the east side of the island, over many, many decades, and it was started by Vaughn's father. All very interesting. Kimberly moves on to her second question. She says, now I have seen and studied the map of Amity, uh, which is included in the Book of Quint. I would like to know where the dock is that the two fishermen use when they try to catch the shark with their holiday roast and where the chief lives. Presumably, the dock is somewhere along South Beach and we know that the chief lives on the other side of the island, but the island is so narrow. Or do they mean the other end, somewhere between the ferry terminal and Amity town? Also, where are the water skiers in Jaws 2? Uh, very interesting. Now, a lot of you out there have not seen the map of Amity Island. Um, it is with the Book of Quint. She's talking about this scene right here. I'm tired. Let's stop before someone reports this. Don't worry. The chief lives on the other side of the island. Am I coming in straight? Don't worry. The chief lives on the other side of the island. So he says, I'm tired. Let's stop before someone reports us. Don't worry. The chief lives on the other side of the island. There is more going on in this scene, and I do not want to spoil it because this is an entire episode that we are going to get to in the future. But what that does detail is that, yes, those gentlemen are on the southern side of the island around Averill Bay in the Averill Bay area. 
And if you look on your map, if you go north, you'll see the uh, Billboard Lighthouse is on the North Shore. If you look just to the east of that, there's a little bay. That road right in there is where Chief Brody lives. And what that shows is that's half that that billboard is then on the way to the town of Amity. That's why in the beginning of Jaws, Chief leaves his house and then drives past the Welcome to Amity Island billboard, then down into the town of Amity, into an Amity Harbor. So that billboard is specifically has to be there in between on that road in between the harbor and the ferry terminal. Because why would there be a Welcome to Amity Island billboard? if there wasn't the ferry terminal where all the cars are going to be driving by there as they make their way th- into the island. So there's a specific reason why that lighthouse has to be in that area between the ferry terminal and then on that same road, and Chief Brody would have to drive by that to get to town. Just like you see in the events of Jaws, if you look on the east coast of the map of Amity Island, there is a, it extends down into a peninsula that, which juts out. That is Cape Scott that Hooper mentions uh, right before, right after the dissection of the tiger shark. If he is a rogue and there's any truth to territoriality at all, we've got a good chance of spotting him between Cape Scott and South Beach. Where are you going? Cape Scott is the, uh, that's the extension down there. The area of land that juts out at the east end of the island that's Cape Scott. Now, on that east coast, between Cable Junction and Cape Scott, that's where all the white sand beaches are. That's explained in the Book of Quint. And that's where the water skier is in Jaws 2. Yes, the Book of Quint also ties Jaws 2 into the Jaws universe because we have Chief Brody there. We have the Brody family. So it's only fitting that we have to use Jaws 2 as canon to the Jaws universe. Good luck with Jaws 3 and Jaws the Revenge. We have to dismiss those off to the side if we're going to make these work because those have so many inconsistencies that they do not work when even factored in with Jaws 1 and 2. So what we have is, just to remind, uh, just to answer Kimberly and remind everyone once again, is that that east coast of Jaws, uh, that east coast of Amity Island is where much of the, um, where many of the events are you'll see the lighthouse there. The Cape Scott Lighthouse is where the uh, the washed up killer whale is on the beach in Jaws 2. Then you also have that that Cape Scott Point is where the kids go sailing to get around there. And that's largely uninhabited on Amity Island. That's exactly why the Amity Shores project is actually looking to build more houses. In Jaws 2, when you see Ellen Brody as a real estate agent and she's with the mayor and the developer that they are working at showing investors how much land and how beautiful that eastern shore is. So Amity Shores is going to look to expand and build there. That's where the events of Jaws 2 go in. So if you look at the 1968 map, which is included in the Book of Quint, there aren't many roads that lead over there. It's still very isolated. So by the time 1977 rolls around, it's there now are some roads there, but it's hard to get to that southeastern area of the island, which makes it a, the, a popular hangout for kids that can sail there and get their boats there. Then they are kind of away from their parents and they are kind of on their own. 
and that's why Michael Brody is looking to sail there, and it's a big it's a big popular hangout for the teenagers. That is so that map actually explains the events of Jaws two, uh, why the kids are there, and also if you look at its relation to uh, Cable Junction, Cable Junction is between there and Nantucket. So that's naturally where the power supply would come from Nantucket into Cable Junction and then hit Amity. And that's why the kids are stranded on Cable Junction because they are sailing on that eastern side of the island. That map does a lot to explain things. So um, I can't wait until uh, when that map goes worldwide. There are many more details in that map uh, of Amity Island that John Tedder and I worked on in order to line up all the events. And that's what the Book of Quint does. It has to establish that map in order to make the future events in the universe work. Is that without all these great um, movies, uh, uh, all great franchises or expanded universes, if you want to look at Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, or the Star Wars, there's always planetary maps, maps, uh, visuals, in which the world takes place. And that's the most logical decision is that design for Amity Island. It fits all the events of Jaws and Jaws 2 and the expanded universe that is uh, being told with the Book of Quint. So very exciting. That's question number two from Kimberly. And then Kimberly wraps up her email. She says, finally, for now, a question about the Jaws timeline. Alex Kittner was attacked on Sunday The ads were placed on Monday, appeared in Tuesday's paper, and all the fishermen arrived on Wednesday, which is when the tiger shark was caught. Hooper says the digestive system of this animal is very slow. Whatever it's eaten in the last 24 hours is bound to still be in there. However, by Wednesday, it is coming up on 72 hours since the attack. Also, when they cut the shark open, there is a Louisiana license plate in its stomach. Even when the Gulf Stream, even with the Gulf Stream, could it really have swum from Louisiana to Amity in 24 hours? What do you think is going on here? Just a continuity error or something else? Well, Kimberly, that's a very good question. It's a very, very, very good question. Let's let's go. Let's let's start with that line. I just I want to be sure. You want to be sure. We all want to be sure, okay? And what I want to do is very simple. The digestive system of this animal is very, very slow. Let's cut it open. Whatever it's eaten in the last 24 hours is bound to still be in there, and then we'll be sure. What we're looking at is that Hooper says 24 hours. I did some research here, and uh, it's very commonly known that the digestive system of sharks is very slow. Uh, sharks, uh, I'm going to go to animalqueries.com. Sharks are massive animals, so the common assumption is that they have a voracious appetite. But is it true? Sharks eat once every two to three days. This is because although sharks are large animals, they need time to break down and digest their food. Ideally, during each meal, most sharks consume 0.5 to 3% of their body weight. Similarly, sharks do not hunt every day and only seek new prey once they have digested their previous meal. They can eat their total food requirement in one meal or split it between two meals. It takes the sharks a lot of time to digest their meals, and therefore when they are not eating, they focus on breaking down the food. So they eat once every two or three days. I believe what Hooper was meant to say was 24 to 72 hours. And we do know he's flustered there. 
He had the uh, Awat guys. He had Pratt and the Awat guy. And the third man there browbeating him and intimidating him. He has the adrenaline going. He definitely meant to say 24 to 72 hours. And we do know that Alex Kittner was killed on a Sunday, June 29th, because of the poster in the uh, in the town hall. Remember, we went through and the uh, uh, the Jaws the uh, Jaws timeline explained in episode 16, where we proved that Jaws takes place over 12 calendar days. That is essential into understanding the events of Jaws is to understand these 12 calendar days. For Hooper to say 24, we do we already know we have been through a few days. We already had the holiday roast scene. That was one day. We also know that there was one day between the attack and the town hall scene because Alex Kittner was killed on a Sunday and they're meeting on a Monday. There's no way they're in that beach going over to the town hall and having that meeting. And and there's no way that Mrs. Kittner uh, made that sign up the same day. So she obviously put that sign up. That's a Monday. So we are we are many days removed. We are a few days removed. We are on a Wednesday. So why would Hooper say 24 hours? He meant to say 24 to 72. He's being very scientifically accurate. He's trying to say the right uh, scientific shark names during the autopsy scene. He's uh, trying to... But he's he's yet yeah, he we do know he gets easily flustered in the scope of the situation, in the drama and the and the adrenaline of the situation. So that's what he meant to say was 24 to 72 hours. And also what Kimberly was saying about the Louisiana license plate where Hooper says it's coming up from the Gulf Stream. So is it possible that that shark it's important? Yes, a shark I don't think could make that swim from uh, Gulf waters, let's say Louisiana, let's say it was off of Florida and it swallowed the Louisiana plate. Okay. Is it possible to swim all that way up there in 24? No, it would probably be more logical 72 hours or more. The ocean foundation, oceanfdn.org. What's in a tiger shark stomach? Alex Inez, uh, back in 2018, down in the Gulf of Mexico, has a nice little article here about the contents inside uh, during the summer of 16. They, they did a um, study on the contents of a tiger shark's stomach, and they dissected many uh, tiger shark stomachs that were either caught through local fisheries or found dead. And they found around 25 to 30 percent. It looks like it's 25 to 30 percent of the stomach contents were plastic and trash. So an interesting part uh, shows pictures of a sea turtle head found in the tiger shark stomach. And uh, Alex writes, so here's what I did to try to answer some of my research questions and contribute to what we know about tiger sharks in the Northwest Atlantic and the Gulf of Mexico. The number one question I get about my research is whether or not I found any license plates in any of the stomachs. I did not, and you've been watching too much Jaws. But to be fair, license plates have been found in the stomachs of tiger sharks before. The second most popular question is I get is where do I get these shark stomachs from? The sharks were collected from commercial fishermen in the bottom in the shark bottom longline fishery. Um, this is totally legal, and the stomachs themselves are collected by NOAA observers. Observers collect data at sea while on commerci- commercial fishing vessels. 
Some of the more interesting items I found were entire rather large sea turtles that were swallowed completely whole. The tiger shark has some very strong stomach acids, a newborn baby dolphin, uh, pieces of an orange that I had to actually smell and peel the rind off to figure out what they were, large vertebrae from other large sharks, sandwich bags, and other plastic trash. Essentially, as the shark got larger, the prey got larger. Uh, but one interesting fact is that the ti uh, tiger shark is just one of uh, several species of sharks have that can perform what is called a stomach, it's called a shark stomach eversion. They do have some video of a shark stomach eversion where a shark is allowed to a shark can actually turn its stomach inside out and regurgitate indigestible material that's inside its stomach. So when Hooper's pulling out the can and he's pulling out the license plate, the shark is not actually going to digest that. That's going to collect in the shark's stomach and eventually the shark decides, okay, it's time to regurgitate and it actually can turn its stomach inside out and it comes out of its mouth and it flushes its system. They actually have it on video. It's, there's a YouTube video that I will put in our show notes. Is it possible that this tiger shark tried to do that and the license plate was still lodged? So is it possible that this shark had or had not done it yet and it still had it in its system? But it's all perfectly logical in the timeline that the tiger shark could have in 72 hours take swallowed the license plate off of Louisiana or Florida or somewhere down south and then c came up in the Gulf Stream, swam up, and now was off Amity Island. Uh, yes, Hooper definitely wanted to say, and I bet you if someone pressed him on it, Hooper would say, I meant 24 to 72 hours. The digestive system of a shark is very slow. According to, the, according to some of my amateur research here, and they, they, sharks will eat once every two to three days. So it makes sense. It makes sense that the shark went from Chrissy Watkins on a Friday, then to Alex Kittner and Pippet on a Sunday, then to Ben Gardner's first mate on a Wednesday, uh, and then all the way to Friday with the estuary victim on 4th of July. So it all makes sense, and it all leads up to three days after the estuary victim, which is on the 4th and 5th, 6th, 7th, is when the first sight of the shark uh, hitting the chum line, and when Brody spots the shark for the first time at the stern of the orca with the chum. So we see that uh, the attacks are quite spaced out within two to three days in this Jaws 12-day calendar timeline that we have on our show notes. All very interesting stuff. It, this, this continues to prove that the 12-day Jaws Obsession official movie timeline, official Jaws movie timeline, is the most accurate timeline that you will find out there. We consistently see that it holds up to scrutiny every time we look deep inside the facts of the movie. Great to see. Great to see. Thank you very much, Kimberly, for uh, pushing us on the Jaws Obsession and pushing us to explain some of the very intricate details of the greatest movie ever made. So with that, let's jump into the second half of this episode. For this show, for a special interview, as the Book of Quint reaches its most important reader in the world, which is what we're going to explain shortly, we have Edward Rodriguez is on the line to bring it all into proper perspective. 
Ed, how are you doing today? Welcome to the Jaws Obsession. I'm doing great. Oh, Beautiful great. day here in Benicia. Thank you so much for being on the line with us because this is a special day in that we're going to get to your, to some news that's coming up here. What I wanted to start with was you've been a very integral part of the Jaws Obsession. And I wanted to start with your introduction to Jaws. What are your earliest memories of Jaws and what does the film mean to you in your life? Wow. Um... I believe it's the first movie my dad ever took me to that I remember him taking me to because, let's see, I was born in 72, so I had to have seen the movie in 75, 6, somewhere around that time. I mean, he had to literally hold my hand through the movie. I, I was glued to the screen, and I just remember vividly how big the screen was, and I remember the curtains. It seemed like they went up for 200 feet, and he had to hold my hand. I wouldn't take my eyes off the screen, and I was affected like everyone else. Wow. You know, when I got home, I couldn't take a bath anymore. I, I was afraid <laughs> of the, the toilet water. I was afraid to have my, my leg hanging off the bed. You know, I, sure. I was just – and then for Christmas, I get the, the Jaws – toy that there was a toy that you know you would reach in its mouth and grab and you know an anchor or or some oh some, that little game right oh yeah, yeah. you know and, and it was awesome and, and it was just such a big part of my early memory that i recall from my father i remember my mom not being there it was just me and him that's fantastic see i what i love about the jaws obsession is seeing how everybody has a different experience but yet it's still the same in that Jaws is not just what's going on in the movie, it's that family experience of watching Jaws that brought mm -hmm. us together with our families, with our friends, and it just never stops. Even as you continue into your life, you know, watching it with your family now, it just keeps building memories. It's an amazing movie like that, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just, it bonds people you would never think would have the same interests, and here you are together, you know, watching the same movie. Right, right. And that's that's amazing. I love that. I love that you brought up the little the, the plastic jaws, the plastic jaws shark game there with you reach into the mouth. Because so I remember oh, I yeah. had that as a kid as well. <laughs> oh, the box was the best part of it. You the know? box, yeah, because the box had the poster on it, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, let's really quick. Let's take the audience back in time, December twenty twenty one. The Jaws obsession hits the air via podcasting platforms all over the world. I remember you were one of the earlier listeners to the show as we were doing our initial countdown to episode 20. What was your first reaction to the Jaws obsession? Well, you know what? I came across it because I had been listening at work to Jaws, the audiobook. I, I would listen for a few because the audiobook went on for over eight hours or whatever. So I'd listen here and there. And then I got a, a reminder, a little ad saying, well, since you like Jaws, you might also like the Jaws obsession. And I went, what the <laughs> heck is this? You know, the Jaws obsession and man, I, you know, I went to the Jaws Obsession and, it, and by that time you were on episode nine. Okay. And uh, it was, who was Ted Grossman? And I was like, what? You know, and it boomed and I couldn't <laughs> believe it, you know, and, and ever since then I was hooked. I went back and, and listened one through eight, you know, and, right. then, and then I couldn't, and then you were putting these things out like once a week, it seemed like, you know, yeah. and I was like, oh man, I can't wait, you know, cause I had rifled through one through eight so fast. <laughs> I should have, I should have saved them, you know, and I was like, oh my God, you know, so it was the greatest thing ever, you know, listening to the, to the Jaws audible 
and then having it refer me to the Jaws obsession. I mean, I couldn't. I, it was it was one of the best things that happened to me. Oh, that's cool. That's and and I remember you you were emailing. We we exchanged a few emails right off the start. You were one of the first after episode twenty in the book of Quint was announced and the Indiegogo campaign went live. You were one of the first backers. We corresponded through a few emails. We talked about the uh, about San Francisco and how nineteen fifty one San Francisco is depicted in the book of Quint. What was it about that initial announcement of the book that made you jump in with both feet? Because you came on really early as a backer. Once I realized that episode 20, you announced the forthcoming book, I was I was all in because Quint is my guy. You know, okay. I mean, Quint, we, I think we all have a, a Quint in our family, you know, and, and in one way or another, it's funny how Jaws, you know, you have Hooper and you have Brody and you have Quint and, and somehow all of those people equal people that you know, you know, already. And, and at a certain time or a place, you know, you'll have a, a, a cautious uh, a Hooper or a, a, a weary Brody or a Quint who just bulls his way through life. So when I heard that, I mean, the book of Quint, so it's about Quint, you know, the backstory and I, I had to, I had to be in, you know, I had to, I, I had to get in on the ground floor and, and it was just, it was a no brainer to me, you know? Oh, it's fantastic. That's it. But, and, and you have a special attachment to Quint's backstory in the location you have lived in for quite a while, right? Your whole life. Uh, can you explain oh, yeah. the history of Mare Island and the areas in and around San Francisco as it has to do with Quint and Jaws lore? Yeah, well, uh, I was born in San Francisco in, in 1972. In 1980, we moved to Vallejo, California, which is home to Mare Island Naval Base. When you're growing up as a kid and, and, and the base is alive and going on, you don't really appreciate what 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 it meant to to Vallejo and uh, when it closed down in the 90s then you saw the devastation that it kind of left behind with the small mom and pop businesses closing and uh, you have a main right. street Tennessee street that leads right up to the gates to Mare Island and I mean that was just hustle and bustle and it had been that way since the 1920s and 30s and so Vallejo became accustomed to having Mare Island as its heartbeat provided a lot of people with uh, income and, and futures. And I knew a lot of old folk who had uh, worked at Mare Island and retired from Mare Island and, and had a great life, sent their kids to school. Right. And all of a sudden that was gone. I, I still remember looking out of my bedroom window. We had a two-story house. Uh, in, we have a two, my mom still lives in Vallejo, two-story house in my bedroom. I could see the smokestack a blue smokestack with the with the horse head on there and that was the that was the mare that was found at Mare Island that belonged to General uh, Mariano Vallejo that was his that's why it's named Mare Island and I could see that from my window oh fantastic and I could I could hear the 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 five o'clock uh, horn, you know, the 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 the, the quitting time whistle, you know. I we would hear it, you know. We were, I mean, as as the crow flies, my mom's house was maybe five hundred yards from Mare Island, wow. you know. So this is the so, and this is the shipping yard. So you like this is the shipping. Obviously, for everybody, the the Mare Island is the shipyard that would uh, where ships would go for dry dock and repair or even to, for construction. Uh, military, right? So was that a, it? Was still a navy yard at that time, right? Right. But also other ships would be in there, and this. And, and, and like I said, we were so young, and, and we didn't understand because it had always been there until it was gone. And this holds a special part in Jaws lore, 
is that the Indianapolis, this was the last port of call. The Indianapolis left from Mare Island shipyard as it went on its secret mission um, that was detailed in Quint's speech in Jaws, correct? Correct. Up until a few years ago, there was a Mare Island Museum there. You can go there and for a small donation, you can actually tour inside of uh, right outside where the Indianapolis was. And, and there were volunteers there and there was a nice old lady working and she would take you around and show you different things. And right. I mean, myself, I, I, I'm 51 years old and I didn't realize that uh, the flag that flew at Iwo Jima was made at Mare Island. Oh. So when you see that, that uh, you know, iconic picture yep. of them raising the flag, that flag was made at Mare Island. Oh, that's I amazing. Mean, obviously, obviously, we had Rosie's Riveters all over the place. Uh-huh. Um, the museum also stated that they invented crazy glue at Mare Island. And, uh, I mean, these little things <laughs> that you never, you know, it's just incredible. And, and, of course, the Indianapolis was there. And speaking with this nice lady, there's a lot of, uh, bay in the Bay Area here, there's a lot of, where were the components of the bomb placed? You know, some say at Mare Island, others say at Hunter's Point, which is another base uh-huh. and in the area. But this this lady, she actually had pictures of where they had the uranium and how they, it was. I mean, she had it detailed how she wanted it to be known. The components were put on the ship at Mare Island. From Mare Island, it went to Hunter's Point and picked up supplies. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, who, how am I going to argue with her? You know, she, she <laughs> obviously knows what she's talking about. So, but yeah, it was just incredible to know. I only knew this in my thirties and forties and, and I wish I, I would have known stuff like this when I was 18. Sure. But, uh, it, but well, I know now. That's a, that's, that's one of the things, the history, it's great that you brought up that the, the flag of the Iwo Jima flag. Um, mm-hmm. which I think it, I saw that flag at the Smithsonian. So now that's over sitting in the Smithsonian uh, Institute over in uh, Washington, D.C., that it was made at Mare Island. So all, you had all this history that came through that area, uh, right. especially for that time, for, like, for that World War II time. I wanted to read something here. I don't know if you, did you hear the last episode 64 was the revelation of quartermaster first class Bob Goss as the oh, so- yeah. source for Quint's Indianapolis speech. I thought it was very interesting here. I found some more details, but I wanted to talk to you about the Golden Gate Bridge, which is the iconic bridge in that area. Um, mm-hmm. I have page 41 from uh, In Harm's Way by Doug Stanton. So he, he, he talks about when the USS Indianapolis left port from Mare Island on July 16th, it was a Monday, Monday, July 16th, 1945, sailing to Tinian Island. So for every sailor passing under the Golden Gate Bridge was a solemn moment. Silently eyeing its ochre spans, the boys wondered if they would ever lay eyes on it again. Down on the fantail in the ship's stern, headquartered for the enlisted men, some of the boys formed a betting pool. Anybody who wanted could throw in a buck to wager on the next time they'd see the Golden Gate. Continues on, it says, Bob Goss was standing at at the wheel as the ship made her way out of San Francisco Bay. Beside him was Captain McVeigh looking stern and unflappable. When Goss looked up at the bridge uh, there on the span, although he could barely make her out, was his wife, and she was waving. Mm. What it talks about is that Bob Goss, it was the quartermaster first class, was actually on the bridge at the wheel 
because uh, quartermasters are, uh, they use, they're experts on nautical charts. They're always on the bridge uh, giving nautical directions. And he was right next to Captain McVeigh. While the Indianapolis was going underneath the Golden Gate Bridge, um, mm-hmm. on its way out into to head into the Pacific on that fateful voyage. A few chapters of the Book of Quint tell of Quint's return to San Francisco after the rescue. Um, there's talk of Mare Island and how the Navy handled the 316 men who survived the tragedy. Last year, you visited Mare Island, the site of the Indianapolis last port of call. When you took your the photo of the Book of Quint at Mare Island Shipyard, that was a very solemn moment, and it really brought things into perspective about the Book of Quint. That, that I want to thank you very much for what you did there. Um, it inspired me to keep pushing forward through this process. But what were your thoughts? What made you take the Book of Quint out to Mare Island to take that photo? For anyone that doesn't know, this photo was on our Instagram, at Book of Quint. Ed, what, do you, what were you thinking at that time? That day, I remember because I, I would have the book with me, and it was always in, in, my, uh, in my truck. And I had my mother with me that day. And we were just, I was taking her to the grocery store. And I said, let's go this, uh, let's go by the waterfront. You know, we can see the, the nice sunset. And I said, you know what? I got the book with me. And there's Mare Island. There's the building that says Mare Island. I mean, it was just to me, it was just the right time. I just happened to have the book. And I had read the part where Quint, I don't, you know, I hope I'm not spoiling the book to anyone, but it's early in the book yeah. where he had, he, he was, he had a small shack over there and he, he was repairing the M1 Grands. And, and I said, man, I, I mean, who else is going to have the book of Quint out at Mare Island and, and, and be able to represent this? So I, I just, I mean, it was a total full circle moment when I read that part where Quint was at Mare Island, I couldn't. I just, I, I couldn't, for him being one of my favorite characters of all time, for him to be represented literally hundreds of yards away from my house where I grew up, it just meant something more to me than, than I think uh, people realize. So it was just, I wanted, you know, you to see that and, and, and have that representation of the book also, because it, it's just that special oh, to me, what, at least. That's wonderful. I, it's wonderful to hear because it, it, I felt it and I saw that when we were about to have the uh, launch here, the soft mm-hmm. launch of um, w- when the book actually was started to st- be sent out. And it was neat to see all the everyone with their with their books of Quint around the world. And uh, oh, yeah. the, the Mare Island photo was just it set what we were trying to do on on another level. It brought the historical mm-hmm. aspect into play. You have to realize you did something that set things in motion, which you ultimately did this month, that the special event that was happening at the beginning of this month of, of July and that you informed me about, I had no idea. So who is Mr. Harold Bray and what was going what was going to be unveiled at the beginning of this month? Well, Mr. Harold Bray... Right now, as we speak, he is the uh, last surviving member of the USS Indianapolis. He was a police officer in Benicia, California, after he came back. I I think he's an iconic figure. I mean, I've seen him around town many years. He used to drive around in his truck. On the back of his tailgate of his truck, he, he, he had maybe airbrushed on there. It says, USS Indianapolis, never forget. And they had the date of, of when the torpedoes hit and all that. Right. And he was always a speaker. He would always go to events and speak upon the uh, 
events had happened. And there's a Mare Island brewery in Vallejo, and there's also one in Benicia. And he would always speak at the one in, in Vallejo about the events that happened in 1945 lately he he you know you wouldn't see him around town as much and and in my head i always said man one of these days i'm gonna meet him you know one of the, I, I have to talk to him i just have to and then on my phone on the instagram i follow a benicia local instagram account and it, and it just popped up that they were going to do this amazing statue for Mr. Harold Bray. And, and that's when I said, man, I wonder if Ryan knows about this, you know, maybe he'd be interested in knowing. And then that's when I sent it to you. And, and I said, wow, this is, this is incredible. You know, that they were going to, yes, they were going to release. They were going to honor Mr. Harold Bray, the last surviving member of the USS Indianapolis crew. He's, mm -hmm. I believe 97 years old, 96. Something like, yeah, like, I think he's 96 years old. Yeah, so he's like 96 years old. Over in Benicia, California, they're going to unveil a statue to Mr. Harold Bray. So you, you notified me about that. And then mm -hmm. I was amazed that he was in such close proximity to you that we discussed mm -hmm. the possibility of getting Mr. Bray a book of Quint. But we both wanted to be respectful and honor his right. this moment, right? His moment. Yes. And as yes. fate would have it, as fate would have it, this all happened within, it was, this was all happening about the same time that I was getting ready to go over to England. Right. So why don't you let the, let the audience know, uh, what made such a moment possible and what happened next after we talked about Mr. Bray and the, and uh, getting him a book of Quint. I sent you a message saying about this event. And then, uh, you said, if, if, if I can get you a book, you know, you, do you think that possibly he, he you, you, you can get it to him. And obviously I was so excited. I put the cart before the horse and I said, of course, you know, and I spent a few days trying to navigate around, you know, I didn't want to just go knock on his door and, and have the whole thing just blown out of the water. I didn't want to be disrespectful or anything like that. And I, so I went right. down different avenues and trying to find out how to do this. And then I was a bit dejected <laughs> and I, I was here in, in my court and I asked the neighbor, I said, man, you know, who's been here for his whole life, you know, how I can get in touch with him. And he was like, ah, you could try the, the veterans hall. You know, I said, oh man, that's a good idea. And as I was walking from his house to my house, my other neighbor was outside and he'd been here for 30 years and I and I just happened to ask him I said hey Mike do you know Harold Bray and he said yeah I used to go to the to the Elks Lodge with him in Vallejo all the time you know <laughs> and then his wife came out and, and his wife said his daughter-in-law works at the community center and it was two o'clock in the afternoon and, and, and she said if you go down there right now she's probably there and I said what you know and then and, and I booked on down there and, and there she was Debbie Bray, who is actually his daughter-in-law, and, and she was one of you know super nice. And I mm -hmm. explained to her what was going on. I explained who Ryan Dackel was. I explained, uh, you know, she obviously knew the Jaws lure and 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 what it meant to her, how it encompassed her father-in-law. Right. And and but I made sure it, this wasn't just uh you know this was a, a a different kind of thing. You know, I didn't want anything except to give her the book to give to him, you know? Right. And she said, she said, yeah. I, I said, could you get a book to him? She said, yeah, no problem. So I, I told you, and then you overnighted a book and I got it to her and, and 
I, I believe maybe that night the book was in his hands. To me, that was that was probably one of the biggest honors because in the book, in the acknowledgments at the towards the end of the book, it mentions it's it's not just in honor of the men who lost their lives on in the Indianapolis, but the 316 survivors had another battle to fight, which was living with the tragedy for the rest of their lives. And to be able to connect with one of the survivors like that, to for for you to be able to get the book to uh, Debbie, and then the book goes, gets over to him, that he has it on his shelf, that it's on the shelf at the Bray family, and I was able to inscribe it to Mr. Bray, and that you were able to pass that off is such a gift to not only myself, but to all of us out there that have been... Uh, that have read the book of Quint and that they we want to see it, that it's nice to have that connection now. One of the things that I wanted him to know, that the USS Indianapolis will never be forgotten. Uh, we're not going to let this be just something that's drifting off. It's a great speech in Jaws, and the story of what the survivors had to deal with is far greater. And Quint embodies that. So he's the fictional embodiment of all these men. And that's what we're doing is we're just extending that story into the future. You were at the statue unveiling for Mr. Bray. Oh yeah. What was the, what was the moment like the atmosphere? What was, it was, uh, you know, it appeared, I see on the, on the video and the photos appeared to be a great turnout. What was the moment like being on the ground there and seeing Mr. Bray? It's called the commandant's house and, and, uh, rumor has it that uh, Ulysses S. Grant spent the night there. He got a little too happy with his alcohol. And then they had a jail underneath the house, and they had to put him in there to kind of keep him keep him corralled. <laughs> and, I mean, it's, it's just a historic area. It, it, right. it, it's like going back in time. And I could not help but to think, because they had a live orchestra or a band there, and, and I was just getting these feelings of, of amity. When the mayor's coming out and the, the little bands playing the music sure, and, and, sure. and and it was just it just all was too perfect, you know, and it was such a beautiful day. Tons of veterans. I mean, there must have been five, six hundred people there. The atmosphere was uh, it was just a joyous occasion. I mean, uh, the people were all there for the same reason to 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 pay respects to Mr. Harold Bray. You know, he's still here and yeah. he got to see it. When I gave Debbie uh, Bray the book, and she told me that he would say he doesn't understand what all the fuss is about. Why? Why do people, you know, uh, uh, have this thing about him? And he, he, you know, he, he just, he's so humble. You know, he, he, right. it's just incredible. And and I kind of explained to her, you know, what I, I, I tend to use Mr. Bray on a day that maybe I don't want to get up at three forty in the morning and go to work, you know, and, and I have a pity party to myself and, and I think of, you know, how bad of a day I'm going to have versus what these gentlemen went to, through back in the day and, and, and they made it through. And if they can go through that, I, this is nothing, you know, for me. So if he's such an inspiration, he doesn't even know he's such a motivating factor. He doesn't even he doesn't even know what effects he has positive effects on people that he has because of, of what he went through you know that's amazing and, yeah, um, absolutely that day I think there was a lot of a lot of me's there you know 500 other people who who may have thought this because everyone was just the people that were there were were there for him he couldn't have been more gracious I mean it is 
just a wonderful day. And the statue is great. They did a great job with the statue. It pays tribute to the PBY. It pays tribute to the Lockheed Ventura. It even has the sharks that are there. Uh, the details that are in the statue are, are second to none. They did such a good job oh, with that. You couldn't ask for anything more. I mean, right. it's just, you don't just look at the statue for the statue. When you get up close, you got to spend at least 30 minutes just staring at it to get mm. all, all the details that are there. And to think, I mean, 17 years old, I mean, what was I doing when I was 17? I wasn't, I wasn't being a man. I'll tell you that. <laughs> and here he, here he was, you know, a man. That's amazing. You, know? you were able to shake his hand. You were able to meet the, this historical legend, Mr. Harold Bray, weren't you? I, yes, I was, I was, I, it was one of the, I, you know, I, I've met a few celebrities in my life or, uh, and, and, and other noteworthy people. And this one is right up there with it. Just what he means to me may not be what he means to someone else, but hits me in the right spot because just leading up to him, he, he's, he was joking and, and, right. and, uh, he had like, before I, I had my moment with him, there was like three young ladies with him and, and, and uh, they took a picture with him and, and they gave him a kiss. And he, when <laughs> I came up, he goes, you're not going to want a kiss too, are you? You know, it's he, just so witty, you know, and I said, oh, no, sir, you know, I don't, I don't want to kiss, you know, <laughs> but he was, he was just, I mean, you know, when they, when they say there's an aura around people, this guy, he just, he had it, you know, he right. was just, he's just blessed. You know, it, right. I, don't, I, I can't explain it. You know, I want to say he's a national treasure and and uh, I think his story should be told. Sure. And, and that's why I think that, that going forward, many of the survivors, each of them handled dealing with what they went through in their own way. Some lost themselves to the demons of the moment. And then there were others like Mr. Bray, the air tasted sweeter. Everything was to, to be alive just meant life was much more precious. And there was this exceptional outpouring of uh, support for each other and the forgiveness factor. We do know that the um, the granddaughter of Hashimoto. Correct. Uh, Atsuko Lida. Yeah, she was a, uh, the granddaughter of the commander of the uh, submarine. Amazing. So Atsuko Lida was the granddaughter, right? She so she was mm -hmm. at the ceremony. You saw her there as well, right? The uh, so this is the uh, re, this is the Hashimoto uh, uh, was the commander of the submarine that sank the USS Indianapolis. His granddaughter mm -hmm. was in attendance at this ceremony, and mm -hmm. and you saw that. And and this is all in historical records in these books that I have in front of me, the Indianapolis books that she was going to these survivor um, get-togethers in Indianapolis when the survivors would have the reunion as far back as 2001. Oh, um, yeah. And so she actually made the effort to go there to at Mr. Bray's statue. And that's what, what an example, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, with people speaking on, on Mr. Bray's behalf, and, and he had just recently extended uh, to one of the last survivors of the submarine. He wanted to get... A message to them saying that he forgives them wow and and he he got the message that that was received and thank you it was so much forgive in this world that we live in today where people you know they get crossed at each other for the smallest things and here we have something i mean it, this is unbelievable because i i just learned maybe a couple of weeks ago that the bomb that was delivered and dropped on hiroshima 
actually ended up killing uh, Hashimoto's family. Yes. Yep. And then to have to have Hashimoto show up to uh, McVeigh's trial and basically defend him. Yep. I can't. I can't even fathom that. You know, the level of forgiveness is is incredible. So. I, I, you know, we can all learn from history. You always say we should learn from history. Yep. Well, this is a case in point, you know. It's unbelievable. That, 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 that's the thing is that these, these men, these boys were thrust into this situation, which is what wars have done. And it's still going on to this day. And here we have these examples. And I just think that if anyone looks up, we're going to put a lot of these links to these articles on our show notes. But to have Hashimoto's granddaughter there with Mr. Bray is such it's it's an ama- it was an amazing moment and it's a huge example of what some of the of what Mr. Bray became how he was a source of inspiration that came that that came out of this tragic situation uh what an example the man is for the rest of us and um oh yeah Ed I can't first for him to be able to have access to the book of Quint it's on his bookshelf right now uh, that's just to me. It leaves me speechless that that we were able to get this done. That um, and that example that you gave about if you have are about to have a long day at work, it seems like nothing when you think of what Harold Bray went through in the water after the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. It's an example that when after you told me that it's I use that. I'm that's just an example that going forward is there's no there are there are no uh, nights that are too long and there is no uh, there there are no um, pages that are too much work to to get done when you look at Mr. Bray's example and to know that he has a book and that you were instrumental in that is is worth its weight in gold and I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart Ed it really means a lot oh wow well, yeah. I mean, uh, this this whole experience means a lot to me too. I mean, it feels like because of you, I'm a part of something that I've always loved, and then you you're able to make it tangible. I mean, this none of this happens without you and the book of Quint and the the Jaws obsession, and I'm I'm sure I'm not the only one that feels this way. Um, I, this is just incredible that that uh, we live in the time we live in right now. And we're able to uh, cross borders and 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 actually uh, interact with each other and and enjoy the same things, you know. That we don't, you know. There's no politics involved. There's no talk of religion. There's nothing. All there is is jobs, right. you know. And and all that that encompasses. And 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 basically, it's three characters and a fish, right? And <laughs> why why does that have us so? so uh, mesmerized it, it's just incredible how 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 something can bring us all together you know and and moving in the same direction i i love it you know and i, I want to thank you and 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 i think uh uh it's been one of the biggest joys of, of my life uh to be involved in in this manner extremely humbled here thank you so much wow ad that's <laughs> Wow, we're we're. I'm telling you, we we are. Uh, you brought this historical connection into play early on, from just being in that area. And when 
I mean, what are the odds that you're in the same town as the last surviving member of the USS (laughs) Indianapolis? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. You can't make this stuff up. This is uh, now this is set in stone. So for I love that uh, episode 65, we're just moving forward with every episode of the Jaws Obsession. We're just making more historical connections. It's really is uh, it's humbling. It it is humbling. And I want to thank you for coming on the show and sharing the news that Mr. Harold Bray does have a book of Quint, and it's wonderful to see that bridge connected with the history of the moment. Thank you so much, Ed, for coming on. Hey, thank you for having me, and uh, thank you for providing such a good uh, source of information, and, and hopefully it'll go on for 65 more shows. Oh, thanks. With, 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 uh, uh, to, from your lips to God's ears or what, how should we say? <laughs> Absolutely. With good, with good fortune, we're going to make that happen. Thank you so much, Ed. All right. Right on. Thank you very much. What a great example of Jaws fans coming together to do great things. I'm inspired every time that I see, uh, it's just inspiring talking to Ed and uh, seeing how these events went. It was absolutely inspiring. I'm going to put a few articles on our show notes to, if anyone wants to read, I have an article here, Real Hero Harold Bray, honored with statue in Benicia. 96-year-old Bray is the last living USS Indianapolis survivor. Harold was 17 years old when he went aboard the Indianapolis and he turned 18 in May of 1945, shortly after he went aboard. He was a seaman first class, having just completed boot camp at Great Lakes, Michigan that winter. Harold went on to serve until he was honorably discharged in 1946. Following his time in the Navy, Harold moved to Benicia Bay Area in 1948, where he worked for the Armory for several years and finally joined the police department serving as a detective until he retired in the 1980s. Harold still lives in Benicia with his wife Stephanie and currently serves as the chairman of the USS Indianapolis Survivors Organization. What an amazing time. What an amazing time for all of us together as fans of Jaws. We're doing our part to ensure that the history of the USS Indianapolis will never be forgotten as future generations learn of historical figures as Harold Bray, Bob Gauze, Captain McVeigh, and the USS Indianapolis crew. And this history of the moment will go on for future generations. That's what we're doing. And it's exciting to see and to make that connection. It leaves me speechless uh, at the moment. I wanted to finish up this episode by reading uh, an excerpt from Harold Bray's entry into to understand a little bit of what this man went through, Mr. Bray. I'm going to read from his uh, from chapter 25 of Only 316 Survived, Navy's Worst Tragedy at Sea, Harold Bray's Entry, Chapter 25. These are in the words of Mr. Bray. As we were swimming away from the ship, I looked back in time to see the Indy standing on her bow and slowly disappear beneath the waves. Even as she was going down, there were sailors falling off her until she went under. A little while later, there was an underwater explosion. We started to gather up survivors. A group came up with a raft, and we tied the crash net to it so we could stay together. There was a lot of speculation and conversation about what had happened and how long it would take to find us. The first day in the water was pretty horrific for this first-time sailor. Sharks. I had not in my wildest dream thought I would ever be this close, that close to those creatures, but there they were. The men with bad wounds or burns did not last very long. During the day, the sun was very hot, and at night it was very cold. 
After a while, the men developed saltwater sores and blisters, and they would drink the salt water and get blisters inside their mouths and throats. We saw airplanes go over us every day. We shot flares but got no response from the air. We lost a lot of good young men in the first three days in the water. I think it was on the fourth day that I was hanging on the side of the net and this sailor came floating by. His mouth and tongue were just full of saltwater sores. I grabbed him and tied him as best I could to the net, but he got away during the night. Absolutely amazing uh, absolutely heartbreaking what these men went through. And Mr. Bray is the last surviving member of the USS Indianapolis. It is an honor and a privilege to know that we were able to include him on this journey that we are taking with the Book of Quint. When asked about the Book of Quint by Ed Rodriguez, Mr. Bray answered, he, he said, I'm going to read it sometime when I'm alone at night. That's just absolutely amazing. From all of us here at the Jaws Obsession, and for all of the Jaws fans out there, I'm sure, to Mr. Bray, we would like to extend our deepest appreciation for your service and your sacrifice to this country. Yeah. I would uh, stay mostly by myself during the days, and of course, like I said, I'd get up on the net at night, so I, if I fell asleep, I wouldn't float away from the group, and uh, a lot of guys, that's how they disappeared. Uh, and of course, the sharks were busy all the time. But I had them, you could look down, we were in the water all the time. I yeah. mean, we were wet all the time. There was no getting out of the water because uh, all we had was a net to hang on to. Uh, and of course, the guys were lucky enough to have uh, life jackets, but they were only good for 72 hours. Right. And we were in the, in the water already 100 hours, you know, to start pulling you down. And of course, they're full of oil too. Mm-hmm. And they got, if you weren't hanging on the net, you were up to your chin in water, you know. 